Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is journalist and author Sam Quinones. Sam lived for 10 years as a freelance writer in Mexico, where he wrote his first two books, returning to the United States in 2004 to work for the LA Times, covering immigration, drug trafficking, neighborhood stories, and gangs. In 2014, he resigned from the Times to return to freelancing, working for publications including National Geographic, The New York Times, and Los Angeles Magazine. He's the author of three books, including Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, which appeared on a lot of best of the year book award lists and also won the National Books Book Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction. He's spoken about the crisis in many venues, including interviews on two of my personal favorite podcasts, Mark Mirren's WTF and Russ Roberts' Econ Talk, and he recently testified on the opioid crisis before the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Sam Quinones, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. You know, before we get to the opioid crisis, I'd like to ask you about your time in Mexico. You know, Many Americans, I think, have some pretty strong views about Mexico, especially when it comes to issues like immigration, gangs, and drugs. But, you know, not many Americans have spent much time in that country, let alone the decade that you've lived and worked there. And so I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about why you went to live in Mexico and what you learned from the experience and how it's informed your writing. Well, I went down there really because uh, at first I went down there just to study a little bit of Spanish. My Spanish was rudimentary, and I wanted to improve it to become a better reporter. Uh, I was in California at the time, and I was uh, uh, really felt that if I didn't know Spanish, I was I was not going to be marketable as a reporter, and I was going to lose out on a lot of stories that I felt could could, know, could learn about. When I went down there, um, I found a job at a at a magazine quite unexpectedly. And so ended up, and I stayed, and that that brought me to Mexico permanently. And that magazine failed uh, about a, a year later, and I became a freelancer. So I went down for three months, stayed for ten years, and uh, wrote two books uh, about 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 the country. And mostly, I began. I wrote. Um, uh, it, it just awakened. Uh, first of all, it was a ma- massive, beautiful adventure. It was just so fun. Um, uh, a lot of stuff was happening in Mexico that was very positive, very exciting. There was the end of a one-party state, very corrupt thing that had run the country for many, many years. Um, I began to focus not really on drugs. I began to focus on immigration. I think that I, I felt that was the major top, uh, a huge topic. Uh, and and I began to go to all the, the states where the that were known for uh, mass exodus of immigrants. Went to a lot of little villages. Um, a, a couple of things helped. Uh, one was uh, Mexico allowed me to become a more of a long form narrative writer that I wanted to be. And so the stories were, uh, led to that. I mean, that you could you could create amazing narratives, I felt, uh, from from stories you just would happen upon very, very casually sometimes. But it was like there was a, this, this, you know, a gold mine of stories uh, uh, out there. But it also got me into a lot of the villages where um, immigrants come from, the small villages, the ranchos, where, where people, uh, you know, most of our make, the, the, or the, the, the origins of most of the migrants in the United States from, from Mexico, these small villages. So I knew these places very well by the time I left uh, Mexico, and my first two books have a lot of stories about them, in fact. 
Um, and that helped a lot. It helped me become the kind of writer I wanted to be, which is more of a narrative writer, but, but also got me into a very, very important part of, of the world uh, that, that is very important for the United States, which is the small Mexican village, because so many of our migrants uh, come from there. Now, I would say I was there during a very different time in Mexico. I would not be able to do what I did right now um, because of the violence. I, they went, I traveled all over Mexico. I didn't own a car. I traveled by bus um, the whole time. And, and, and it was very easy to do that, very cheap, very easy to do that. You go to small towns and hi there, and people would talk to you, look at you a little weird, and then you got to know you. They would, after a while, it was very easy to, to, to learn what the story was you were trying to find out about. Uh, that is not the case anymore, and particularly in a lot of in the, in the several of the states I used to spend a lot of time. Well, Michoacan is one. I used to go there a lot, and I'm terrified of going there now. I just won't go. So there's a lot of that. Uh, it's a, it brought me to write about uh, 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 deeper stories, longer form uh, uh, stories, and stories that had to do with the villages, which where most of the migrants in the United States come from. I'd like to thank our first sponsor, Dollar Shave Club. You know, you've heard Jay and me talk about the amazing shave we get from our Dollar Shave Club razors, especially when we use them with their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter. And now they have even more products for your daily routine. They've got stuff for your hair, face, skin, shower, even butt wipes. Really, everything you need. And it's all their own original stuff with premium ingredients that are delivered right to your door so you don't have to deal with those annoying trips to the store. And we want you to love Dollar Shave Club every bit as much as we do. And so we've arranged for Politics Guys listeners to get your first month of their best razor. I believe it's the executive razor. Sounds good, huh? Along with travel size versions of shave butter, body cleanser, and yes, you will even get butt wipes for just five bucks. And after that, replacement cartridges ship for just a few bucks a month. It's the Dollar Shave Club starter set. Get yours for just $5 exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. Now, how did Dreamland come about? Well, out of that, really. I mean, I, before um, I got into this, I was doing stories on, 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 uh, 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 Mexico, you know, and Mexican drug trafficking. And I could not understand why Mexican heroin traffickers were doing such big business. This was the original question that got me going uh, on, uh, on all this as part of, uh, you know, uh, clanking around on that story, I began to uh, understand the story of one town in particular. And the, the name of this town is Jalisco uh, in the state of Nayarit, uh, a small state on the Pacific coast of Mexico, uh, where everybody who comes to the United States sells heroin and sells it retail and sells it retail like pizza, like delivering uh, heroin as, as if it were pizza, you know, to, to where the addicts are, are living or near, near there. And, and so that story amazed me. And it was this, the idea that there would be one town where everybody does the same job. I had already seen that many, many times in Mexico. All across Mexico, you can find small villages where everybody does the same job. In my first book, I wrote a story about a, a, a village where everybody has gone out to the rest of Mexico and makes popsicles, owns popsicle shops. So, uh, that you can find other villages where everyone's a construction worker. Uh, one town, literally everyone 
has gotten jobs with police officers in different parts of the country. Uh, and the reason for that is that, that, that in, in, in rural, uh, you know, Mexico, there's not access to education. So you learn your job from everybody around you. And in this town, everybody, a few families became heroin traffickers and pretty soon everybody became heroin traffickers in, in, in the United States. So it was really as part of that, trying to figure out why it was uh, that, that heroin traffickers were doing such big business. Seizures were up. Why would this be? I thought heroin was this old business, this old drug no one wanted to mess with. Come across the story of this town. And from there, I come to realize, you know, that the reason these guys have such a new, a big new market for heroin is because of a story I had no idea about, zero idea about it. And that was the pain revolution in the United States that held that we needed, doctors needed now to very, very aggressively treat pain and very aggressively treat it with uh, narcotic painkillers, opioid painkillers like Vicodin and Percocet. I was in Mexico when all that happened. I really don't, did not care to write anything about healthcare policy. I don't find it very interesting most of the time, but this story pushed me there. And so I began to realize that the reason these guys, these heroin traffickers really come second to this party, the, the big story is this pain management uh, revolution that took place beginning in the, really in the mid 1990s, uh, uh, when about the time I moved to Mexico, uh, in, in the United, in the United States. And it was at that point that I began to realize, oh my God, you have pharmaceutical companies hawking their pills very in ways that aren't that different from the way these guys from this one town hawk their heroin. And, and to me that all of that began to be, that, that became a powerful, powerful idea for a, for a story. At first I published the story in in uh, the uh, LA Times where I worked at the time uh, about that village in Mexico. But then as the story expanded and became this much larger thing, really coast to coast, that's when I began to work on a book about it. Now, originally when drug companies came up with these new drugs, they marketed them right as having very low potential for abuse, didn't they? They did. And that, that, that they, were, they were virtually non-addictive, that less than 1% of all people who were treated for pain with these drugs got 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 addicted, and therefore the idea also grew from that. That's it's one thing to say that, uh, and for a lot of people they're not addicted. But that the corollary was that it therefore did not matter how many of these pills doctors prescribed, and so they after routine surgery became very also routine to see. Uh, People who were going to have two or three days worth of pain from the surgery prescribed 30 days worth of the pills or, and with refills, maybe uh, 60, maybe 90 days, maybe, you know, huge amounts of the pills. And this was, you, you do this over and over and over and over millions and millions of times a year all across the country. And you get to a point where we got to, which was this massive amount of supply of, of narcotic painkillers uh, across the country and medicine cabinets, but then also a lot of that leaking out into and forming a black market as well. Right. And so then when people run out of prescriptions or can't find doctors that are willing to do that, then they turn to drugs like heroin, presumably. Right. And, and what, what we also didn't understand was that we, as we were, as pharmaceutical companies and pain specialists and so on, were, and the medical establishment pushing this idea of uh, a new way of treating pain with narcotic painkillers almost exclusively, that we didn't understand that another change had taken place that plays into this. And that is that our heroin market had, had been transformed. Before 
the 1980s, a very large chunk of our heroin came from the Far East, came from Turkey and Burma and Thailand and those places, came across two continents, across an, across an ocean, got to New York, then it went, went, went west after that, and it got to the, the, the addicts who needed it um, uh, with, uh, by, you know, very, very expensive and very weak because it had to come from so far away. Well, in 1980, the cartels in Colombia and increasingly the guys in Mexico who were not, who were just forming and becoming what they are today, um, began to get in on this trade. And they really just outcompeted their heroin outcompeted the far Eastern stuff coming through New York. So, and they had these big, this big Mexican border, U.S. Mexican border to come across. So it was a lot of ways you could get it across instead of just coming through New York. Um, and so their heroin outcompeted, got here, it got here cheaper. And uh, every year it got cheaper and cheaper through the 80s and into the 1990s, and it got here very potent. And so by the early 1990s, basically almost all our heroin, a very, very large percentage of our heroin came from Latin America. And increasingly today, it's virtually all coming from, from, from Mexico. Um, and that was also important because that, may, gave, that was the alternative that people turned to. If, if the heroin had been like the Far Eastern stuff, expensive and weak, I don't think you'd see a lot of people going from pills to that. You might find some, but it, would, it, it, it wouldn't be as common. It wouldn't be nearly as fatal. Um, but, but now we have people uh, as, who see that. You know, so you've got, you're up $150, $200 a day habit on the pills, and you see uh, heroin is only, what, 50 bucks a day. Oh, my God, that's a no-brainer, as many people have told me. It's a no-brainer to switch to heroin. Uh, well, that's very potent heroin. And what's more, we unleashed, we kind of awakened the enormous power and ingenuity of the Mexican drug trafficking culture, not to say necessarily always cartels. A lot of individuals are involved in this. That's what distinguishes Mexican trafficking from Colombian trafficking. It's not just big groups. It's a lot of different people doing it uh, and doing it from time to time, not every day and that kind of thing. And, and so... Uh, a lot of people, you know, began to apply that ingenuity to how they traffic heroin, which was not the case uh, before this. So you had that confluence. And we, we, we went about this, this revolution in pain management, believing we could do it in a vacuum, that there was nothing else that might factor in here. And boy, we, were we wrong. Our second sponsor today is Policy Genius. You know, I don't know about you, but I did, in fact, make some New Year's resolutions and... Uh, I'm doing okay, but there are a few that already went by the wayside. And I don't know if you know this, but according to, I don't know, studies, I guess, nearly a third of people every year resolve to be more financially responsible. That's a great resolution, but you can guess what happens with most of those resolutions. They, you know, fall by the wayside, just like some of mine did. Well, here's the genius part of Policy Genius. They can help you make the smart, responsible financial decision to buy life insurance in as little as five minutes. With Policy Genius, you can compare quotes online to get the best policy at the best price for you. They've helped over 4 million people, and they don't just insure life, they insure everything in it. You can compare quotes for health insurance, disability insurance, renter's insurance, and even pet insurance. So they've got you covered. Now, if you did make a New Year's resolution to be better with money, achieve it at policygenius.com. It's the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. There's zero sales pressure and no hassle. And did I mention? I didn't. It's free. And that's the most financially responsible price of all. Policy Genius. Get your New Year's resolution resolved in five minutes. 
you know, it seems like uh, this issue has obviously gotten a lot of attention over the last few years after getting almost no attention for you know, the last 18 or 20 years before that. But even so, it seems like the problem is actually getting worse. There's this December 2017 report from the National Center for Health Statistics says that overdose overdose deaths from opioids are still going up and there's been a huge spike in deaths from synthetic opioids and and I'm wondering why do you think that problem is getting worse and and why particularly with these uh, synthetic opioids well a couple of things first of all uh, remember we have been aware i mean uh, some people have been aware of this for quite a long time uh, families have been you know that kind of thing and some police officers and public health people have been aware of this for many many years we have, as a, as a culture, as a nation, been aware of this for about two years. This has been going on for 20 plus years. All of a sudden, we decide, now we're aware of it, now we want to, and, and we're surprised that we do not immediately solve the problem. It takes a long time. If you're going to spend 20 years creating it, you got to be adult. you got to think in terms in adult terms, and that's not going to be two years. Now, what we also did was when we began this pain revolution and that led to heroin was we awakened the vast uh, profit-making impulse of the the particularly the mexican uh drug trafficking culture and very ingenious as i said but they're also extraordinarily bottom line oriented and at that point if you are a drug trafficker there is nothing that makes more sense than to traffic fentanyl it is so cheap to make so relatively easy. You find an underground chemist, very fairly easy to make. And the profit is, is enormous. You don't have to do it seasonally, like with uh, waiting for the poppy to harvest and then having uh, some folks up in the mountains along the Pacific coast harvest it for you, all that kind of stuff. You can make it in any warehouse in any part of the world so long as you have the, 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 the chemicals. And so we awakened all that. That was dormant. No one cared about heroin in Mexico in the late 90s, early 2000s, really, that, they were all about meth or about cocaine. They just didn't want to, heroin was scuzzy. Then we awaken that with this pill revolution that takes place about those, during those years, slowly grow, get, getting momentum, gaining momentum. And, th- and that be, they begin, as any business people will do, to say, what will make me the most profit? Well, heroin, let's do heroin. We know that. We've got people who can do that. And then eventually, well, actually, there's this other thing. This guy invented in 1960 over in Europe. It's called fentanyl. And they use it, and, and it's 100 times more potent. It's so much cheaper, and the profit is through the roof. And that is, that is the problem. That is, that is why it's very unlikely, by the way, that any wall will, will, will have any uh, effect on, on that part of it. Um, they keep people out. Walls keep people out. They don't do a very good job of keeping drugs. Uh, out. All that stuff is coming through. I mean, because it's a very small quantity you're talking about to make a ton of money. And, and you know, a, a few grams will make you huge amounts of, of, of money and it'll come through the mail. And so the amount that you could fit in one of those sugar packets at a Denny's restaurant, that is a huge amount of fentanyl. You could, you could parlay that for, for weeks, probably. Um, and very dangerous, too, of course, because it's now in powder. This is the other thing. It's now in powder form. Fentanyl pharmaceutically has never been in powder. People understand how potent it is, how dangerous it is in that form. It's always been in patches, lollipops, IVs, that kind of thing. It's, it's never been it never been made so it'd be easy to just inhale to come and get into the atmosphere and inhale. And that's what makes it also very 
very potent. But the idea is um, very dangerous. That, but the idea is that, that we have been at this for a year and a half, two years, and all of a sudden people are like, why isn't it better? Well, because it's 20, it's, it was a problem that, that took 20 years to, to fester. Well, you know, given how easy it is to transport and how incredibly profitable it is, I wonder if this is sort of a, a kind of a whack-a-mole type of situation where, you know, we, maybe we can put one gang out of commission, but another one I would think would just pop right up to, to fill that void. I know, in, like President Trump, for instance, has focused a lot on that group, uh, the MS-13 and, and cutting, you know, cutting down on gangs and that sort of thing. But I'm wondering, given the magnitude of the problem and how addictive heroin is and, and everything you've said to this point, do you think that this focus on the, on the supply side is really the right way to focus? I, I, well, it's not the only way to focus, but it's definitely true that we need to focus on, on, on supply. Uh, the supply created this problem, and we have a massive amount of supply. It's very, one of the most dangerous things in America to do today is get out of drug treatment uh, for, her, for opiate addiction because you get back out on the street and the supply is so potent. So scary, so cheap too. That's the other thing. It's just frighteningly cheap. My God, and um, and so that is. Uh, I think now the problem is in the past we've like only done supply. To my way of thinking, this is an isolating class of drug. It feeds on our cultural isolation that we as Americans suffer from deeply. I believe all across rich, poor doesn't matter. We have a we have an isolated a culture of isolation that is wrenching in this country. This drug is this poster child for that. It is the, the, the great symptom. It's the great uh, expression because it, uh, of that, because it isolates people who use it. People just want to be by themselves. It's as if this is the, 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 the very embodiment of our, of our culture of isolation of these, of these class of, this class of, of drugs. And that's why I think that the idea that we must attack supply is, a, is absolutely necessary. Law enforcement has a huge, huge, very important role in all that, but that is not all that we need to do. We need to pr- present, I think, a very, um, a community of approaches, a community of solutions. There is no solution to this. There are many, many solutions, plural, and they, very few of them are sexy. A lot of them are like involved the mundane, mecha- uh, you know, go- uh, mechanics of governing and and bringing together people. But what you're finding now, very exciting, very exhilarating in this country right now, and in your area in Ohio and Kentucky and so on, it's it's uh, definitely the case. You are finding county by county by county all across this country, are uh, uh, places are forming task forces, and it's. What's exciting about it, I think, is that they're bringing together not the only the usual suspects, not just public health and cops and prosecutors and DA and all that. They are bringing together clergy, uh, coaches, college presidents, uh, health systems and doctors, um, uh, recovering addicts. The idea being that you bring together different voices and together you come up with a menu, a, 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 a community of approaches, a mosaic of approaches that it could involve a, a whole bunch of different things, changing how jail is done, medically assisted treatment, syringe exchange, all those are fine, yes, but maybe there are other things, maybe ways of building back community uh, are part of this. And so uh, I believe that that is happening now. And that is, to address your whack-a-mole idea, that is a template 
for addressing the next drug pro- problem that may come down the pike, or maybe even not just a drug problem exclusively, but maybe the homeless problem, or maybe uh, human trafficking, or something like that. What the, it all sounds very Pollyannish to say, oh, well, if we all just come together and leverage our talents, and leverage our energy, and leverage our budgets, uh, and 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 you know, through that that enhanced force, we will have a have an effect that sounds very Pollyannish. You know, just work together and everything will be fine. You know, the truth is, I think there's something to that. And the problem was, we were not, we were not doing that. We don't, we haven't done that for quite, quite a, a long, a long time. And and when you do that, you find that you have enormous effects. They're all in in isolation. All problems when you work in isolation, all problems seem insoluble. Together, they they don't. And one example I'll just end with. Uh, your question, your answer with is is in Los Angeles where I live. We have a very we have an almost non-existent gang problem. We have very very diminished gang problem, a street gang problem. It's street activity that was made famous in the 80s and 90s with drive-by shootings and graffiti and these guys taking over a parks or apartment complexes. A very very aggressive way that does not happen in Cal- in Los Angeles anymore. You, you go neighborhood after neighborhood. And the, re- what, the many reasons why. But one reason is because cops are now, and, and all the folks in law enforcement are now in a very concerted way working together more than they ever did uh, back in the 80s and, and 90s. Back in the 80s and 90s, nobody wanted to work with the FBI. Sheriffs and LAPD hated each other. Smaller departments hated LAPD. Everybody wanted their credit. Nobody wanted to work together. Federal prosecutors didn't know the attorney, the district attorneys, prosecutors. There was there was just complete isolation. That ended in the 2000s. They began to put together massive indictments, putting a lot of these the worst offenders, the worst nasty gang members in 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 prison, in federal prison through RICO, uh, racketeering uh, conspiracy cases, and. And all those guys went away. They left the neighborhoods. And now you're seeing in neighborhoods where gangs kept property values at almost effectively at zero. Now you're seeing houses sell for dollars $200,000, $300,000, $400,000. That's due to collaboration on a major social issue. So it works. And it's happening. And we'll see. It's going to take some time. Our third sponsor today is DaVinci. Now, I bet you've been in a coffee shop before, maybe more than one, and you've seen someone trying to hold a meeting there, you know, those little tables and all the noise and, you know, sure, maybe there's Wi-Fi, but is it secure Wi-Fi? Uh, I don't know. Good news is that DaVinci has an incredibly affordable solution to this really common problem. DaVinci provides you with access to meeting rooms in well-known office locations in every city, and they make it totally easy. Just search, book, and meet. Boom. Your DaVinci meeting room comes equipped with high-speed internet and all the presentation tools you'll need to make your next meeting a success. And it's, you know, whether you need a day office, a conference room, a boardroom, a training space, whatever it is, DaVinci has you covered. And best of all, DaVinci meeting rooms start at just $10 an hour. That is a great price. Even better, yes, even better, go to davincimeet.com slash tpg and for a limited time, get 50% off your first purchase. Peaches purchase. That's D-A-V-I-N-C-I-M-E-E-T dot com slash tpg. Terms and conditions apply. For details, see davincimeet.com slash tpg. 
Yeah, no, I, I just want to emphasize, I think that's an incredibly important point, not just for drug policy, but as you as you suggested, it, so many social policies, that's, that seems to be the template for success and oftentimes, unfortunately, very difficult to make happen for various reasons. Uh, you know, moving on to other, I've heard all kinds of solutions, ideas, suggested one that seems to be, well, I'll call it creative or, or I don't know, out there sort of. Some people have actually claimed that expanding Medicaid has actually made the problem worse. And I actually believe in a, in a few cases, they've, they've suggested that there's, some, there's something in, in your book that suggests a connection there. And, and I wanted to ask you, is that right? And if so, what's behind this connection? Well, I, it, it is right, but it's complicated. And um, it's, not, it's important. People who do that need to understand that I was writing a tale that has a lot of threads. And when you focus on one thread, you're getting back to the old way. You know, how do we treat pain with just one thing, one pill, you know, one kind of pill for everybody. Uh, Medicaid uh, in your area was a big, was one way in which supply of pills was expand, was unleashed early on. People would be on SSI or SSDI. They would have the Medicaid card. And with the Medicaid card, you go to a, one of those pill mill docs and those pill mill docs write you up a long pers- uh, list of pills you can get. You go to the pharmacy, pharmacy and they fill it and for $3 copay and you have a huge amount of pills and these pills you, then you can, you, can, you can use or sell or whatever. And there's no doubt in some areas, absolutely uh, stand by this idea, that there's no doubt in some areas that a Medicaid helped expand these, uh, the, the supply of pills, certainly back then when pill mills were very, very uh, common in, in Southern Ohio and parts of Kentucky and West Virginia, and then later on Florida, et cetera. Um, however, um, I think it's, it's a more nuanced story now uh, that in order for that scam to work, you need a doctor who's going to go along with you. And a lot of docs don't do that anymore. And those pill mills are gone. So the Medicaid scam that I wrote about in the book that I believe had a, absolutely a big effect on, on this early on, it, I, I'm not sure that uh, that's the case. What I do believe is the case is that we still, even today, have not changed the culture of medicine to the degree that we need to so that, that pills are not the only option that you get when you go into a doctor for pain. So if you expand the amount of, dr- of healthcare access, that you are giving in a state, you are going to expand the number of people who have come in contact with or, or, or insist to doctors that they must have pain pills and that doctors maybe still are a little too uh, willing to explore, use pain pills at the expense of the, uh, uh, and not many other options that they may or may not have available to them. A lot of times I think a lot of folks don't have a lot of other options. So when you expand Healthcare through Medicaid, you you also expand people's exposure to the to the culture of medical culture of using pills for pain, and I think that and that's my hunch that when that that's what's happened now because in a lot of states you do not see the pill mill scam that used to be so it was so big uh, uh, in in say the late 90s, early 2000s, into the middle 2000s in Florida particularly you do see an occasional scandalous doctor. Um, but not to the degree that you did back back then. In some areas, you still see it. Um, in some areas, like in LA, you still see the street gangs, who are now no longer street gangs. They're more like business enterprises. They're not shooting up houses and making life awful for for neighborhoods. But they still, some of them still exist. 
and and they're 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 using Medicaid and Medicare as, as a way of of scamming. Uh, um, that that's happened, certainly true. Um, but I would say that, that that probably more likely, my hunch is that what's happening in a lot of those states that have adopted expanded Medicaid and seen uh, increases in overdoses is they just get more people getting access to healthcare. And when they get access to healthcare, the culture has not changed enough to say we need a whole bunch of approaches to pain, not just not just uh, the pill. Also, I have to say, in a lot of those states, Ohio, Kentucky, and stuff, a lot, thousands and thousands of people, the only way they're getting drug treatment at all is through that. So it's a, it's, it's a but, but, I, but what I don't like, I have to say, is when I read people quoting my book saying, Medicaid caused all this. Well, you know, I wrote very, very, I was very uh, intent on writing a book that wove together all the different threads of why we were into this, in this problem. And so it bothers me when I see people just say, well, I'll cherry pick one part of it. If you want to get into a full discussion, I'm happy. And I, I did not blink. I wrote about uh, Medicaid, um, but there's a whole bunch more that went into this, not sure. just that. So, I mean, you could you could easily just as easily say, well, veterans health coverage caused this or private health insurance causes by giving people access to prescription drugs. Essentially, when what really caused it, it sounds like, is just a problem with the culture in physicians yes. and 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 manufacturers right. and drug distributors. Yeah. So, yeah, I exactly. To- and, and you could. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I wanted to ask you about, well, my area. I, I'm in Southern Ohio, which really seems to be to me pretty close to ground zero in an area that it looks like to me includes Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, West Virginia, and, and then Pennsylvania. And I'm wondering, why is it that certain areas have been so much harder hit by this epidemic? Uh, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I have all the answers for you. I think, I think early on, they were that area was a targeted because that's that's an area of you know economic decline rust belt phenomenon appalachian what have you and i think that by the early to mid 1990s people were turning in that area people were turning to doctors to navigate economic pain not just physical health pain uh and so people would go to doctors for workers comp for SSI, for SSDI, you know, a variety of programs uh, to get get you through what was really an economic problem became also, uh, uh, you needed a doctor for that. And you needed a doctor to sign off on it. Welfare reform happened, um, which uh, uh, cut people off after five years. So you could have five years of welfare. Well, a lot, well, disability was for life. So a lot of people migrated from there to disability. I think that happened an awful lot in the region. We're talking about kind of a culture of relying on disability um, as as uh, uh, as a way really of, of of navigating what is what is probably if you look into it the family story is most likely an economic one but people now kids getting out of high school at 20 uh, 18 20 21 years old they they go right on to to disability doctors are a big part of all that and doctors in those areas seeing this wanting to help not having many tools with which to help became pretty, a lot of doctors became pretty heavy prescribers of all kinds of pills, not just uh, painkillers. Um, so doctors were already primed, I think, and the pharmaceutical companies had that data. They, they were, yeah, doctors I've talked to knew that they, 
they were they were hit up a lot because they were already um, heavy prescribers of other kinds of pills, just all kinds of uh, 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 of pills um, for all kinds of ailments. And so, um, so I think in part that's that's why uh, it happened in that that ground zero area that you very roughly described. I'd also include like parts of Virginia and Eastern Tennessee, probably in that in that whole area in that whole uh, map. But um, uh, I, I so I think that was um, uh, certainly. Uh, a part of it, I think there grew up uh, uh, in the, those areas, a kind of a culture of pills adding to the economy of a family. Uh, so uh, grandparents had it, the kids sold it, and, and pretty soon the family was kind of believing that they were doing maybe better or better than they would otherwise uh, by, by doing it. Um, I believe in those areas, there's an awful lot of uh, pain already, people already in a lot of pain, a lot of coal mining, a lot of manufacturing and blue collar work. Um, so people are, you know, there's a, the, 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 a, the treating of pain was, was a big part of that. I think you see that in other parts of the country as well, though. You know, I think you see that in where this became an issue, uh, southern, I think, parts of Maine and New Hampshire, I think New Mexico, et cetera, where, where these areas were some of the first that were, that were uh, affected. All the answers for why that is, I mean, I think, um, I'm not sure that I have them, honestly. Right. Do you think there's anything that we're doing or maybe misconceptions we have that might be counterproductive or making this problem worse? Um, well, I do believe that, that our, our, um, the stigma and embarrassment surrounding addiction is just gets in the way. It's just such a, a damaging kind of, uh, a damaging thing. It, it, you know, people need to get over that and get beyond that because it, it, even if you don't think much of addicts and you don't have any in your family, it doesn't help your region. It doesn't help your, to, to view addicts as this kind of like scourge. And, and what it does do is help keep it under wraps, keep the problem under, under wraps. So I think people need to come to a new way of viewing addicts and addiction than, than we have had. I think that has been uh, uh, fairly uh, counterproductive, honestly. It, it just hasn't helped. It, is, it has gotten in the way of people coming forward gotten in the way of people being uh, open about it. And because of that, it, that's why it spread. I mean, people were not uh, comfortable in talking about how their, their kid or their husband or their uncle or what have you uh, got addicted. And so um, because of that, the next person uh, didn't know that there were people that around, who, around them who could help them. Uh, didn't, they thought they were all alone. And, and that's the worst place you can be, it seems to me. It- I guess I'd like to close with, I want to get a sense of your level of optimism here. Do you think we're going to look back and say 2025 and say, wow, that was a bad time. I'm so glad that that epidemic has, has ebbed or, or, or what do you think? Uh, I think we'll look back and say, how on earth did we believe that these pills were virtually non-addictive for almost everybody and that therefore we should could prescribe them in vast quantities for almost everything. And to me, that is one of the things we will look back on and like, this was the dark ages or something, you know, it's just amazing. Uh, um, I, I would say a, a couple of things. One, it seems to me that this epidemic though has an enormous opportunity. That's what I told the senators when I testified. It provides us with an enormous, very positive, we need to view this it's a catastrophe. There's no doubt it's a catastrophe, but we also need to view it as an opportunity, a gift almost, 
in, through which we, we begin to change parts of American culture that led to this. I think it's a golden opportunity, as I told the, the senators, to um, uh, marshal forces and begin to invest in those areas that have been left behind by globalization, left behind by free trade and all that. I think that's, that that is one major thing that we need, need to do. I think the Marshall Plan uh, for Europe after World War II for rebuilding Europe, I don't, I'm not sure why we can't have a Marshall Plan for American recovery, just as there was a Marshall Plan for European recovery uh, back after World War II. And, and going in and, and, and a variety of ways of, of, of boosting this. It, I think it also is extraordinarily interesting, a, a, a very positive to see all these counties uh, come together in the way that they have. And I was speaking with uh, um, uh, police chief in Bellefontaine, o- Ohio, talking about this. Uh, Brown County in Ohio, too, just had a conversation with somebody. All these things are so positive. And I think, think to the degree in which we can begin to understand the importance of community, of not destroying community, but instead coming together and rebuilding it, um, and then working together and not not having this awful, awful debilitating siloization, I guess, of, of, of efforts and turf battles and all that stuff. And, and the, the, to the degree that we can come together and, and, and work together as communities again, uh, something we got away from really, I believe, over the last 30, 30 40 years, then, then we will look back and think, this is how it started. This started it, and maybe there's something positive to come out of this very grim catastrophe. Well, I, I, I certainly hope so. And on that hopeful note, we will close. Uh, Sam Quinones, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Great to be here. Thank you very much for taking the time, Mike. That's it for this Politics Guys interview. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Now, listener support is really what helps keep the show going. If you'd like to help us out, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal links. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also really does help. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguides.com or our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguides. The executive producers of the Politics Guides are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.